It's Thursday, August 13th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Russia's President Vladimir Putin has announced that they have approved the first vaccine for COVID-19. He said the vaccine, dubbed Sputnik V, works quite effectively, and it has even been given to his daughter. However, many health experts are skeptical because it has not gone through late-stage clinical trials. Tina Hesman Say, senior writer at Science News, joins us for what we know about Russia's vaccine. Next, Joe Biden has picked Senator Kamala Harris as his running mate. And even though she was the front runner from the beginning, the process to get there was unusual and laborious. 11 finalists were involved, a panel of lawyers, and tough questions for all. Michael Shearer, national political reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for how the Biden-Harris ticket came to be. Finally, we all remember the panic buying at the start of the pandemic and how tough it was to find toilet paper and cleaning supplies. While some of those products are back in stores in steady supply, other groceries are still hard to find. Baking ingredients, coffee and tea, barbecue and other items are hard to come by. Annie Gasparo, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for why it's still so hard to find some items. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. So I hope, but I haven't heard any evidence to make me feel that's the case. I hope that the Russians have actually definitively proven that the vaccine is safe and effective. I seriously doubt that they've done that. Joining us now is Tina Hesman Say, senior writer at Science News. Thanks for joining us, Tina. Thank you for having me. This week, we had an interesting bit of news in the coronavirus pandemic story. Russia said that they had the first vaccine ready to go. President Vladimir Putin announced in a televised cabinet meeting that they're ready to roll with the first COVID-19 vaccine to the general public. Right away, everybody said, whoa, 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 let's take a step back. This doesn't seem like it's gone through any phase three trials, but he said it's safe. He said it's so safe that they've given it to his daughter already. But a whole host of questions arose out of this news. So, Tina, tell us what we know about this Russian vaccine. We know very little about the vaccine, actually. There's no published data on any of the results of the trials that they have done. So we just have the word of Vladimir Putin and the health minister that it is safe and they are saying it is effective, which is not something you can really say at this point since they haven't done the testing to determine whether it's effective. What we do know about it comes from a clinical trial registry. There's an American site called clinicaltrials.gov where a lot of clinical trials from around the world are registered. And according to the information there, this is a vaccine that's actually a two-part vaccine. It is two common cold viruses, which are called adenoviruses, that have been engineered so that they make the spike protein from the coronavirus. And it's an important protein because it helps the virus latch on to cells and infect them. And since it's on the outside, it's a good target for antibodies to bind to and help block the virus from infecting cells. I mean, it's very similar from my understanding to the University of Oxford, AstraZeneca, a vaccine candidate. It works in similar ways. So at least the science is kind of there. It's not like they're trying to create some new thing out of it. A lot of it has to do, and the criticisms are, 
the lack of testing, the lack of going through a full phase three trial. And apparently they did, I guess, some type of phase two trial with their military, although the amount of people is not what they would usually want to do in these sizes of trials. But they seem like they're ready to go with it. Apparently, the business people and politicians have had access to it for quite some time, but they only really started testing this vaccine back in June. Other vaccines that are similar, as you mentioned, the Oxford University one, one that was developed by CanSino, which is a Chinese and Canadian concern, and the other one is a Johnson & Johnson Janssen Pharmaceuticals vaccine, which also uses similar viruses. Those have been in development for longer, and they have already reported phase one and phase two clinical trials, and they are starting testing in about 30,000 people each to try and determine whether or not this actually prevents you from getting the coronavirus. The Russians have not started that type of testing yet, so they can't really say whether it is effective. The interesting thing is, and you kind of named a lot of the different vaccine candidates, Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, there's a bunch of different ones, right? These are all made by pharmaceutical companies. And this Russian vaccine is actually made by the Gamayela Institute, which is kind of their Russian body of sciencing. So they're not necessarily doing it with a big company, it seems like. But from my understanding, there's already other countries that are interested in buying doses of this. And I like the way you put in the article, did the Russians win the vaccine race with this? I mean, if all is lucky and all goes well and it proves to be effective and safe, this is a big point of national pride for them, I guess, even though the virus is global and all. But I just want to explore that concept of did they win that vaccine race? It's only a win if it really is safe and effective. If it's not, then it could be a big loss for everyone because people might not trust the vaccines that are proven safe and effective later on. But, you know, if even one country develops a vaccine, that's great for everybody because it could potentially mean that we can get back to something resembling normalcy if we can protect people against right. getting infected with this virus. So the more success that people have, you know, whether it's one country or all of these vaccines that are in development, if they seem like they actually offer some protection, that's a win for everybody. So it's not like everybody else is going to stop because the Russians say that they have a vaccine. All of this effort is going to keep going forward, and hopefully we will have multiple vaccines so that everybody who needs one can get one. Tina Hessman Say, senior writer at Science News, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Ask Kamala to be the last voice in the room to always tell me the truth, which she will. Challenge my assumptions if she disagrees. Ask the hard questions. Because that's the way we make the best decisions for the American people. Joining us now is Michael Shearer, national political reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Thanks for having me. We all know now that Joe Biden picked Senator Kamala Harris as his running mate for the election in November. There's going to be a lot of firsts with all of this. 
She's the first black woman, the first Asian American woman, the first graduate of a historically black college, first California to be on this major party national ticket like this. But there was a long process to get through this. In the end, there was 11 finalists. I think there was 20 women at the beginning. There's panelists of lawyers, all sorts of team members vetting the process. And we know that this is always a long process, but this was an unusually different process for the Joe Biden team. So, Michael, tell us a little bit about how he came to pick Kamala Harris as his running mate. Basically, the way this process began was Joe Biden saying, I want to pick a woman for this role. And they drew up a list of more than 20 names and cast a pretty broad net for that person. They had a panel of four people helping them. Those people interviewed each of the more than 20 people with basically a questionnaire, the same set of questions for each person. Questions like, what would your agenda be if you're vice president? What do you think Donald Trump's nickname for you would be? They then presented those findings to Joe Biden and his wife, Jill, in a meeting. And the vice president followed up in one-on-one conversations with the members of this group. And then they narrowed that list down to 11 basically finalists who were then subjected to a much more invasive and deeper vetting. For each of those 11 finalists, there was an individual interview that was conducted in the last nine days by the vice president. There was a team of between 12 and 15 attorneys who were assigned to each person to vet basically everything they'd done in their life, you know, all public records, all public speeches, all controversies, financial matters, basically you name it, everything you've done, you were asked to disclose to the vetting committee to discuss, to explain Your spouse's records also were subjected to scrutiny. And then that process ended earlier this week when the former vice president went with Kamala Harris. And up to the end, I think there was some suspense. It's ironic in that this was an enormously laborious process, and he ended up where a lot of people thought he was going to end up from the beginning. It didn't didn't change much. I mean, Kamala Harris was probably a front runner or the front runner for the job when this all started, and, and, and she ended up with the job. I want to go back to something you said at the beginning where all the candidates were given questions in their initial interviews. What do you think Donald Trump's nickname for you would be? And that's actually such an important question right there because that's what the president does. He markets you in a specific way, in a negative way, so that people won't trust you or or whatnot. So having that kind of foresight into how the president would attack you is so important. And for Kamala Harris, she's kind of tough person to pigeonhole. She's a black woman. She's also an Indian American woman. She's the daughter of immigrants. There's a lot of stuff in her background that's going to be tough just to pinpoint on her. So I'm sure that also fared into why she was chosen. I mean, I think there's a couple parts to that question. One is try and work out how the president will attack each of these people. But the other part of it is how they will respond to the attacks. I think one of the things that the interviewers were trying to get from that question is how prepared And how self-aware are these candidates for what they're about to go through if they are picked for this job? People involved in the process of Kamala Harris who had just come through the primary. She's one of the only candidates here who had actually gone through the whole primary process, which is itself a very grueling job interview. Performed very well in that initial meeting, was very confident, knew exactly what she was about, had a good understanding of policy, and was compelling for the people who were talking with her. So I think it was something she was able to pass it. Biden, from the start of this process, has said he didn't hold grudges from the primary process. Kamala Harris went after him effectively and very frontally in one of those early debates in which she questioned his relationship with segregation of senators and said she'd been personally offended by the fact that he had opposed forced busing 
programs by the federal government. But their relationship actually did not begin there. She had been very close with Bill Biden, who remains Joe Biden's sort of emotional lodestar here, his son who died of cancer a few years ago. They had both been attorneys general together at the same time, had been friends, had worked together on big cases. And so they knew each other there. There were also times sort of behind the scenes on the campaign trail, including one moment in October where Biden and Harris's entourage found themselves in the same private airport hangar area. And Joe Biden and her were able to sort of walk away and spend some time with each other. So I think they felt they had a pretty good relationship with each other that had transcended that. And we see that in his choice. He initially said a long time ago, yeah, I'm going to pick a woman. I commit to that. But then increasingly, as the process started going, it seemed like the push for him to pick a woman of color started increasing. And there was a lot of different women of different ethnicities on his shortlist. But this kind of also was a thing that was looming throughout the process. Yeah, and I think it built throughout the process. I mean, at the time this process began, the George Floyd incident had not happened in Minneapolis. There weren't these protests around the country. And over the course of the summer, more and more groups came out, more and more public letters were written. Joe Biden himself was taking private meetings with black officials, consulting allies of his who were telling him it's really important for you to pick a black woman here. And, you know, while the campaign maintains that that was not the reason Harris was picked. It sort of structured the environment in which the decision was made. And I think arguably, if he had gone with a white woman like Elizabeth Warren, the Massachusetts senator, or Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, there would have been a backlash in the base of the party that Biden would have had to deal with. Michael Shearer, national political reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Early in the spring in the pandemic, manufacturers and retails blew through all their inventory so quickly. And because demand has continued to be high, they have not been able to catch up. Joining us now is Annie Gasparro, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Annie. Thank you. I wanted to talk about how it's still pretty hard to find some groceries at the store during the COVID pandemic right now. And we all remember at the beginning of the pandemic, it was impossible to find toilet paper and cleaning supplies, even canned soup. People were doing all this panic buying. But right now, those things have recovered. But there's other things that have been in short supply still. And I, just anecdotally, I know going to the store, sometimes you see a bunch of empty shelves in certain areas. Things like baking ingredients are still a little hard to find. Paper towels are hard to find still. There's a lot of different things like that. So, Annie, tell us about it. Why are we still uh, having a hard time finding some things at the grocery store? Back, like you said, in the spring, everyone was panic buying and stocking up. And now that's not really the problem anymore. It's just that people are continuing to eat at home more. So there's been sustained higher than normal demand for months now. And early in the spring, in the pandemic, manufacturers and retails blew through all their inventory so quickly. And because demand has continued to be high, they have not been able to catch up. And that's especially true in categories where demand is unusually high and they're used to it declining. So you think about something like flour or baking soda, that wasn't a high growth area before this. So the industry just isn't set up to expand really quickly. 10% of items remain out of stock right now, but that can translate to about $10 billion in lost revenue. And even for people that frequent their own market, they're obviously going to go somewhere else to find it. 
And then those individual markets can lose those customers for good on that. So it's kind of this whole effect that happens when things are out of stock. The grocery industry had worked so hard in recent years to try to improve their out-of-stock situation because they were losing so much money and they were losing consumers. So they had put in so much effort to get the ship to run so tightly and have everything on the shelves as much as possible. And because of COVID and the way the demand shifted so dramatically, it sort of took us backward and all of that progress was lost. And now grocery stores are trying to win over consumers. But if you don't have the main things people are shopping for these days, people are even more cautious than normal about going into grocery stores. So people don't want to have to go to three different places to get their groceries for the week. You have a few graphs that kind of illustrate what products are making some comebacks and which ones are still hard to find. Help us run through some of those. We've seen comebacks in things like toilet paper, which was super difficult to find in the beginning of the pandemic. And that's partly because people have stocked up so much that they don't need to replenish as often. (laughs) And then the same goes for some of the frozen produce, frozen fruits and vegetables. Those have started to come back in stock better. But then other things like the canned vegetables are still harder to find because That's just another example of an industry that's not set up for growth. And as you mentioned, just kind of the catch-up that everybody's going through, big companies like Green Giant, Kimberly Clark, Campbell Soup, General Mills, they haven't been able to rebuild those inventories because of such strong demand. Those companies have said that they are running full capacity. They are even, in some cases, hiring third-party manufacturers to make some of their products. They're really doing everything they can, but it's just the demand is so much higher. And at the beginning of the pandemic, what we learned about our food supply in the U.S. is that we have completely different distribution lines set up for restaurants or commercial food compared to grocery. And so we just haven't been able to really shift all of the product and all of the ingredients and packaging and everything from the industries that are seeing a decline to the industries that are seeing the growth. And because we weren't able to make that shift, that's why we end up with a bunch of excess from the restaurants that are closed or have sales falling. And then we have not enough on the grocery shelves. We're still seeing higher prices for a lot of things, about 5% higher on average than a year ago. You're not finding a lot of these two-for-one deals. You're getting instead limits on the hot items that everybody needs. We noticed higher prices, and that was surprising given the economic pressure that most people are facing right now. But it's really because manufacturers and retailers say that they can't offer the usual discounts. And without discounts, the average prices are being pushed up. And that means that that 5% increase that we saw recently is really so much higher than normally we'd see like a one or 2% increase year over year. So 5% is quite a bit and that's pricing by volume. Annie Gasparro reporter at the wall street journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at daily dive pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Vincent Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.